0: Welcome, friends, to this episode, this special edition episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. So we are going to talk about the Haftarah of Shabbat HaChodesh. Now, this would have normally been the Shabbat of a double portion, the last portion of Exodus, called Vayakel Pekudei, and this year, this portion lands. Right before, a few days before, uh, I think it's four days, maybe five days, prior to Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So, on that Shabbat, we learn that this, it is a special Shabbat because of when it falls in relation to Pesach, which is in relation to the new moon of Nisan. And therefore, it is switched, the parsha uh, has an additional, uh, an additional reading and you read from two Torah scrolls, and the Haftarah is switched to a different part of the Prophets. So, let's start with our traditional blessing. Alright, so let's talk about the special edition of the Haftarah portions. And we'll talk about Shabbat Chodesh, which means Shabbat HaChodesh, which means the Shabbat of the moon. And it's implied that it is the new moon. So, uh, like I said, this is the third of four special Shabbats leading up to Pesach. And it actually happens every year, but these four special Shabbats span from Adar into Nisan and right up to Pesach. So they do not always coincide with the same Torah and Haftarah portions uh, that are part of the weekly calendar. So this year, while you have Vayakel and Pekudei replaced um, with the the Haftarah for Shabbat HaChodesh, which is from uh, kehel Ezekiel, chapter 45, 16 through 46, 18, and... This is the Shabbat that precedes or coincides with the new moon of Nisan and uh, replaces the regular Haftarah portion uh, and I won't go into what that is because we're not going to read it this year but anyway uh, this year via and Pekudeh replaced. So uh, now you may wonder well why is that a double portion? So you see a double parashah this year because it is not a Shanah Me'u Beret or a pregnant year i.e. a Jewish leap year. So these two portions of Vayakel and Pekude are split into individual portions in leap years because we have an extra month called Adar Sheni or Adar 2. Now by the way, in case you were wondering, in actuality, Adar 1 in a leap year, which is 7 out of every 19 years, is the extra or added month. Adar 2 is the normal Adar that always occurs. But I digress. So, Shabbat HaChodesh is the Shabbat preceding or landing on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and we read from an extra Sefer Torah turned to Exodus 12, verses 1-20, through where the new moon, the Rosh Chodesh, is given to Israel by Hashem as the first mitzvah or commandment of the 613 mitzvot to Israel. Now, among other reasons, Shabbat HaChodesh honors the anniversary of the original Nisan, or Aviv, as this month is called, in the Tanakh, and the changing of Nisan to the first of all the months as the redemption from Egypt and the miracle at the Reed Sea as Israel was immersed uh, and brought through and changed status from slaves to a nation and a, a tribal order. So the Haftarah is from Ezekiel 45.18-46.15 and it describes the Pesach offering and the Beit Hamikdash the Holy Temple. So uh, we're gonna look at the connection to uh, Ezekiel to from Ezekiel to the to the parashat of, of Exodus 12, 1 through 20 and let's take a look. Alright, so Hachodesh is like I said the name for the moon and or sorry month and it uh, it comes from the same root as chadash, which is which means new. Now, the Shabbat HaChodesh is the last of the four special Shabbats that come before the month of Nissan. So the ones that come before Nissan are called Shkalim, Zachor, Parah, and then we have this one, HaChodesh. Now, if you look at the Talmud in Megillah 3 4, you will see that the rabbis say on the fourth of the four special Shabbats, Exodus 12, 1 through 20 is to be read, and that begins. And this is a direct quote from Exodus 12 1. uh, this month shall be for you. Hachodesh Hazelachem. this month, that's literally what it says in Hebrew. So the Mishnah. Explains that on the Shabbat before the new moon of Nisan that we replace the regular maftir reading from Exodus 12 Which is the instructions for? Sorry, we replace the regular maftir reading with yeah Exodus 12 and the instructions for the Passover sacrifice are given that God gave to Israel uh, at this particular time so Rosh Chodesh alerts us to, hey, Pesach is coming. Pesach is in about two weeks. And if you look to the Tosefta, uh, we'll see that this is the appropriate uh, passage for Shabbat HaChodesh. And in the Tosefta, that is also a reference to Megillah 3.4, uh, Ezekiel 45.18. And this verse begins with, in the first month, on the first of the month. So it literally says, you know, this is Nisan 1, and it explains the third temple and messianic implications and the Messiah's arrival. So in the third temple, there is a consecration, uh, and this happens at the beginning of Nisan. Now, according to the Torah, Moshe consecrated the Mishkan on Nisan 1. And Ezekiel is talking about Passover rituals that are in the future. And this passage talks about the laws pertaining to Pesach and the Messianic age and a ceremony that is connected to the new moon of Nisan and Passover ideas and, and Passover language and vocabulary. So, uh, the Haftarah, this was chosen as a Haftarah, that connects with Exodus 12. Now, there is another passage here from an article, and this is a weekly midrash, and it is called Yo Yul'Ena, and... It was published in about 1994 from Masora Publications. So it says this Haftarah is read so that when Mashiach comes, he will know how to conduct himself. I'm pretty sure that Mashiach doesn't need this Haftarah to know how to conduct himself. But that being said, it is known that Mashiach will come in the month of Nisan. Now think about for a second. We're going to come back to that. And therefore, we read this Haftarah on the Shabbat prior to Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Now, that is interesting because somewhere in Judaism, they believe that Messiah is going to come at Nisan. Well, what about him also coming at Oshoshana for the coronation of the king, for the wedding, uh, the wedding to Israel, and also to the to the righteous uh, members of the, the nations that have come to follow him, as well as... Uh, the beginning of the Hevle Shel Mashiach, the birth pangs of the Messiah, and the Tehiyat Hamitim, the resurrection of the dead. So it, it necessitates two comings. It necessitates two comings because he can't come to the earth uh, and at it, it, two different times on the calendar. Uh, now, incidentally, these are seven years apart. Uh, sorry, I take that back. I'm sorry, I misspoke. I was thinking about the future, Obviously as believers in Yeshua and his resurrection, we believe that this Nisan they're talking about was dated back to the year 4000 in the biblical calendar or 33 common era Okay, so no, I take it back was that yeah 33 common 30 common era. I apologize because Yeshua was born in 3 BCE and He died in 30 common era Okay, so uh, the that is a summary of the haftarah, and let's take a look at the Etz Chaim commentary. So, this talks about the connection. I'm going to read a little bit about the relation of the haftarah to the calendar. So. Parashat HaChodesh is the last of four special Torah passages added to the regular Shabbat portions in the weeks before Pesach, as we already talked about, and that's Exodus 12, 1 through 20. So specifically, it's recited on the last Shabbat of Adar, unless the coming new moon of Nisan falls on a Shabbat, in which case this Haftarah is recited rather than the Haftarah that is normally read that is for a Rosh Chodesh that falls on Shabbat, because that's another passage. I believe it's from Samuel. So, the passage gets its designation from the opening proclamation. This month, HaChodesh hazeh shall mark for you the beginning of the months. And it begins, sorry, it contains the laws concerning a Pesach offering and anticipates the ritual of Nisan 14. Now, this says, See Rashi on Babylonian Talmud, megillah 29a now i believe i referred to megillah 3 verse 4 but it is interesting that rashi refers to megillah 29a so same book in the babylonian Talmud all right so that special torah reading and this haftarah are clearly linked now both passages stress pesach and the festival of hagamatza which, technically, Pesach is only for about six hours. It's from sunset to midnight, and then it's over. Chag HaMatzah starts at sundown, and you have seven straight days, or in the Diaspora, eight days of Chag HaMatzah, The first day being a Shabbat, and the last day being a Shabbat. A Yom Tov, sorry. Now, the Torah describes the inaugural Pesach ceremony in Egypt, as well as provisions for subsequent enactments and the haftarah describes the festival for the envisioned new temple period stressing the formal purifications that will take place at that time now that comes from ezekiel 45 21 through 24 now these two descriptions reflect historical poles so the pesach of egypt recalls a time when israel experienced freedom from slavery and was called by god to be and this is quote a quote from Ezekiel sorry, Exodus nineteen six, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now the Pesach of the future is foreseeing a time when Israel will be restored to the land and all of its sacred responsibilities. Now in the first ceremony blood was smeared on the doorpost of each clan dwelling for the people's protection in Shemot twelve verse thirteen. Now, in the complex ritual detailed by Yehezkel, blood is to be smeared on the doorpost of the temple, among other places, for the purification of the temple itself, and we see this in Ezekiel 45, 19. Now, these thematic connections suggest some theological correlations. Now, splashing blood or smearing blood on the entrances of a home and to the temple with blood marks them off as two types of space. So, it consecrates or makes them kadosh. Uh, and the first embodies the family in the homes, right, whose bonds are organic. Now, the family, the nuclear core of personal history and religious right, preserves a parochial character by virtue of its intimacy and common name. Now, the space within the temple is communal. Everybody gets to go there and its rights have an official public status. Now the temple is the sanctuary of God, so it opens its doors for collective worship, and thus transcends the private histories of its worshippers. And the conjunction of the two readings together sharpens the distinctions between the two dwellings. How one may live in both homes, standing firm in loyalty to hearth and blood, but open to the enlargement of communities that divine temple dwelling symbolizes. This presents a question each individual must answer repeatedly. Okay, so uh, this is a fairly decent length passage, so probably will not be able to read the whole thing, but we're going to take a look at at least one more commentary. Now remember, Pesach and uh Require us to get rid of all which is a picture of leaven. I'm sorry, it is leaven, but it, it's a it's a picture. It's symbolic of uh, sin, arrogance, puffiness, ego, and any other words you can think of that are synonymous with the ones I just said. Now I'm going to look up a scripture here for you. I probably could have prepared a little bit better, but uh, Paul uses a uh, Robshul talks about a little. Leaven puffs up, okay? And he's using um, cooking terms in 1 Corinthians 5 to explain the imagery of Khametz. So, now it's, it's interesting because this starts, the context is sexual immorality. So, there's a connection here between Hamet's ego, arrogance, and sexual immorality. So he says, this is 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, chasveh shalom, God forbid, among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Yeshua on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Yeshua is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved, his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, don't you know that a little yeast, here it comes, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of old sin get rid of old ego old arrogances old offenses old uh, old things that are causing sin so that you may be a new batch of matzah a new unleavened batch as you really are for messiah our passover our pesach lamb our passover lamb has been offered Therefore, let us keep the festival, he's talking obviously about Pesach, he just mentioned it, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness. So that shows us that leaven can be, doesn't have to be, but in this case it is symbolic and indicative of malice and wickedness. And he already said your boasting is not good. Boasting is connected, leads to malice, can lead to malice and wickedness. And he says, but let us keep the festival not with the old bread, but with the unleavened bread, the matzah of sincerity and truth. So that shows you that matzah should make you think of sincerity and truth when you eat it for seven days or eight days in the diaspora if you observe the extra day. So he continues to talk about sexually immoral people and not associating with them and immoral, greedy, swindlers or idolaters. So they're like tied together in this group. They're a gang. So those demons, those spirits, they gang together. Immorality, greed, swindling, and idolatry. And he says, uh, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaningful people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Uh, But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, But is sexually immoral or greedy, an adulterer or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler? So don't associate with any of those people. Do not even eat with such people. Don't even have a meal with them. Because why? Why would he say that? Well, first of all, if you're eating according to the scriptures, you're eating kosher, right? And a person like that has no regard for even eating biblically correct, much less behaving biblically correct. So what business is it of mine to judge those outside the community of believers um, it says church but church is a terrible translation and it should be kehilah, congregation synagogue uh, the word church is a modern invention and back then the word is ekklesia in Greek ekklesia okay so similar to Ecclesiastes and it means a congregation or a collection, a body of believers. And plus, back then, they were meeting in synagogues. The Gentiles, the, the non-Jews, were going to the synagogues. They didn't have a, such a thing as a church. So it's like it's like being um, uh, gone with the wind where there's a, a mistake and there's somebody wearing a Timex watch. Okay, it doesn't belong. So the word church doesn't belong here. There's no such thing as the church it's a modern invention and when I mean modern I mean it dates back you know over a thousand years but it certainly wasn't around at the time that Rob Scholl was reading this so change shift your gaze if you want to look and understand and and see hear, smell feel and taste the kingdom and understand it change vocabulary to what was the vocabulary of the first century when Rav Shul was writing this. Are you not to judge those inside? Verse 13, God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So the Lord gave us to be the hands and feet of the congregation. So he's not going to expel somebody if the leadership doesn't want to do it. His hands are tied. We all have a will to either follow or not. And we have to... We are going to earn those consequences for better or for worse. So he says, are you not to judge those inside, inside the body of Messiah? God will judge those outside. And then it quotes, it says, expel the wicked person from among you. And he's quoting 1 oh, sorry, Deuteronomy 13.5, Deuteronomy 17.7, Deuteronomy 19.19, 19, 19, Deuteronomy 21.21, 22.21. 21, Twenty and twenty-four and chapter twenty-four, verse seven. So um, those Shaul is taking all of his his ideas and judgments and uh, declarations straight from the Torah. Okay, so let's take a look at one more commentary here, and we will call it a lesson. A lesson. Now, this is from a Bible commentary by the Jewish Publication Society, and this is a collection of Haftarot. So, I just wanted to highlight here that on the Shabbat of of Rosh Chodesh, which happens several times during the year, uh, that Rosh Chodesh will actually fall on a Shabbat, and there is a Special reading, and that is Isaiah sixty-six, one through twenty-four. Now, when uh, Rosh Chodesh falls, the day after Shabbat, you read something called mahar Chodesh, which is the normal weekday reading. Uh, if uh, you go to a synagogue on Rosh Chodesh, they read First Samuel twenty verses eighteen through
1: forty-two,
0: and you can read it and see why it's pretty obvious. And then you can read Shabbat, uh, the passage for Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, if Rosh Chodesh actually lands on a Shabbat, and that's from Isaiah 66, and it talks all about the future, observance of the new moon, and it's fascinating. It's a messianic era all the way through and through. Very prophetic. Okay, so let's go to Shabbat Parah, take a look at, no, I'm sorry, that was last week, Shabbat Rosh Chodesh. And... Again, from Ezekiel 45. Eight. Okay, so Ezekiel's life and times and consideration of his style content and theology. You can see a publication called the book of Ezekiel or the overview of biblical books accepted in the Haftarah cycle. So uh, the vision of the future temple. And the city is dated back to 573 before Kaminera, B.C.E. in Ezekiel 40. And the Haftarah envisions various regulations pertaining to the rebuilt temple. Now the Ashkenazi reading opens with the proclamation that the entire population must provide a regular contribution of products for the temple service. And the text then goes on to state that it is the obligation of the prince, the Nasi, to offer the requisite offerings for the new moon and the Sabbath and the festivals from his holdings for all of the expiation or atonement for Israel. Now, this emphasis on atonement continues in the next unit, and we learn of a series of rites to be performed in the first and the seventh months of the seventh month of the year. Now, what's the seventh month of the year? That is when Rosh Hashanah falls. Which is the time of Yeshua's second coming. No, I take it back. That's not the second coming. The second coming is Yom Kippur of the year 6008 on the biblical calendar. But he will return in the air at some Rosh Hashanah in the future. And it could be any time during that 48 hours. And it could be on any given year. Okay. But it is going to be the corrected count by Hashem. Of the year 6001 and we see this throughout Jewish uh, commentary tradition as well as many 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 places in scriptures so that deserves a whole other podcast now um, further details are then given of the offerings for the fixed occasions and the decorum of physical passage within the inner court is regulated for the common people and the prince Now, rules are presented for inheritance gifts by the prince to his sons or subjects. And the Ashkenazi reading begins and ends with matters of gifts. And uh, one is an offering by the body of uh, the population uh, through the prince. And in the second one, the donation by the prince to others. Now, there are details about the temple um, purgations and the offerings, and there, this is kind of broken up into four parts. So you have the obligations, you have the special rites of purgation, how to purify the temple of uncleanness, which is caused by unwitting or ignorant persons, that's in verse 20, and those are to be performed on the first and seventh day of the first and seventh months of the year. Now, it's interesting because the first and seventh day of Nisan um, is Rosh Chodesh and then just Nisan 7. So, no holiday or anything there. But, the first and seven, seventh day of the seventh month are different. Now, the first day of the seventh month, as you know, is Rosh Hashanah and the seventh day of the first month falls between rosh hashanah and yom kippur so tishri seven is during what we call the days of awe now these rituals require the application of the blood from a sin offering to the doorpost of the temple to the corners of the altar and the doorpost of the gate of the inner court and then we see on the 14th day of the first month which is passover in the evening, But the 14th day of the first month is the occasion for the Passover offering. And following it, fixed daily sacrifices or offerings are prescribed for the festival week. And you see a similar cycle of offerings is set for the corresponding third week of the seventh month. What happens, friends, in the third week of the seventh month? Think, that's Tishri. Well, the third week would be... Of uh, Nisan, I'm uh, sorry, Tishri 15. What starts on Tishri 15? Sukkot. Sukkot. And it is fairly easy to calculate without very much doubt at all, with a great degree of certainty, that based on the scriptures where it talks about the course of Aviah, where John the Immerser's father was serving in the temple as a priest, his name was Zechariah. And I believe you find this in both Matthew and Luke, that the, I could be wrong on that, but the course, I'm positive it's not in John, but Matthew and Luke, you find um, these passages where the father of John, quote unquote, John the Baptist, John the Immerser, was a priest. He was serving. He gets the prophecy in the Gospels that John will be born and what to name him. Uh, He finds out, uh, and then he doesn't believe the angel, so he is not allowed to speak for nine months. And then you have the connection between Elisheva, the the mother of John the Immerser, who is related to Miriam, the mother of Yeshua. and And they're six months apart. So John, Yohanan, is six months older than Yeshua, and we know he comes at Pesach. So therefore, we know Yeshua had to be born, and I'm really going over this at a very fast, high level. Therefore, if John was born, Yochanan was born at Pesach, six months later Yeshua was born, he would have been born at Sukkot. Now think about it. It's really simple. We are not commanded to celebrate the birthday of the Messiah, right? But wouldn't it make sense for one of the festivals somewhere in the calendar to prophesy the coming of the Messiah, right? So it does. Sukkot is all about temporary dwellings. Yeshua came and dwelt among us in a temporary house for a limited amount of time. Uh, the four great lights are predictive of his both his birth and the inauguration of his kingdom far, far into the future. And he was called the light of the world. Well, the light of the world, friends, is a temple term, and it's used at Sukkot. And four great lights, among other things, are symbolic of the 4,000 years that it took to get to, quote-unquote, the age of the Messiah. And I talk about that in another podcast called The Letter Mem, which connects to Parashat Sav, which uh, is after this portion of Achodesh. So, anyway... uh, that's, how, that's a, one of the most amazing ways that Pesach and Hagamatzah are connected with a very similar festival that's almost the exact same amount of time and has two festivals connected to each other in the same week. So you have Pesach and Hagamatzah, right? So Pesach happens for six hours, uh, more or less, and then you have Hagamatzah for seven days, and the reverse happens exactly six months from now, or you could look back six months ago uh, but six months from now we'll celebrate sukkot uh, fifty-seven, eighty-four, and it will be uh sukkot day one and then all the way through day seven right and then the eighth day so in that case and the case of sukkot you have something unique and special happening at the end um like a limited bonus time uh commanded in leviticus 23. Uh, But at Pesach, you have the Seder and and Pesach falling before the week-long celebration. So I hope that makes sense. You've got this special time, Pesach, and then a week of celebration called Chagamatzah. And then in the fall, uh, exactly six months away, you have Sukkot. And at the end of Sukkot, you have this special one-day period called Shemini Atzeret, which is distinctly different but connected. So... A lot of mirror image things going on now let's uh, look at content and meaning oh wait um, I apologize so the so part two so we're talking about the four parts of this haftarah. so obligations part two purgations which is the purification of the temple and the, this connection between the first month and the seventh month exactly six months apart and then you have part three which starts Ezekiel 46 1-15 through 15, and you have the rules pertaining to the proper movement within the inner court are laid out. And the various gates to be used for entrance and exit are indicated along with rules pertaining to the times these gates are to be opened. Now, the people and the prince have different regulations, much like a king versus his, uh, not versus, but a king and his subjects. So the contents of the obligations for the festivals and fixed occasions are presented. And now part four starts in Ezekiel 46, verse 16. The prince and his gifts. You have rules for gifts of inheritance by the prince. And if the gift is to any of his sons, uh, this is an inheritance gift in perpetuity. But if it is to any of his subjects, this shall be only from the time of the gift until the year of release. And we see this in Leviticus 25.10. All of this, friends, is going to happen in the future. All of this is going to be the law of the land when Yeshua returns. So, um, and certain properties will revert back to Yeshua every Jubilee. So, uh, the prince, for his part, may not take property away from the people for personal enrichment or inheritance. So, uh, let's look at the text, uh, sorry, the content and the meaning. So, the instruction in this chapter rave very considerably. Um, now, despite the repeated concern for purifications and focus on the print and his duties uh, there are three there are three of the units uh, which we just read about open with prophetic introductions thus says the Lord God uh, we see uh, in Ezekiel 45 9 and that uh, then we see the revelatory character of the rules is uh, stressed and the legal style is used and then the, we'll see that in, in chapter 46 12 verses uh, and also verses 16 and 17. Now, the revealed nature of the prescriptions gives authority to the regulations but has perplexed traditional commentators who have noted many contradictions with priestly rules in the Torah. Now, these difficulties contributed to an ancient rabbinic decision to withdraw the book of Ezekiel from public use, but they canceled that after the heroic exegetical effort of Hananiah ben Hekia in the first century common era. But for him, the book of Ezekiel would have been withdrawn, meaning except if he hadn't stepped in, the book of Ezekiel would have been pulled out for its words contradicted the words of the Torah. Well, what did he do? How did he fix it? They brought up for him 300 measures of oil and he sat down in an upper chamber and expounded it, meaning like he used all that oil to light a lamp for a long time so he could um, write a bunch of commentary that justified keeping it in the canon of the Tanakh. Now, his interpretations are no longer found among us, but the effort saved the day. In other cases, the rabbis actually quote Ezekiel as an authoritative source on certain matters of ritual law. Now, particularly nettlesome is the account of the purgation of the temple in the first and seventh months. Nothing like it is mentioned in the Torah. Okay, I did not know that. Now, some commentators have associated these purifications with the altar consecration mentioned in Ezekiel forty-three, eighteen through 26, and judge this risk to be a one-time event like the, like the tabernacle purification, which also occurred on the first day of the first month. And we see this in Exodus verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 2. Now, in this way, they tried to resolve any conflict between this ceremony and and the rites of ritual cleaning on Yom Kippur 10 days after the new year in the 7th month. And we get that in Leviticus 16.29. Now notably, there is no reference to Yom Kippur in Ezekiel's teaching. And he does not reference the festival of Sukkot, which began on Tishri 15, which is the 7th month. The traditions found in the Haftarah also contradict specific sacrificial regulations found in the Torah. For example, Ezekiel 45.24 says the daily meal offering during the third week of the first and seventh months was to consist of an ephah, meaning one and a half bushels, for each bull and an ephah for each man, with a heen, and that's one and a half gallons. A hin of oil to every ephah. Now, by contrast, the corresponding meal offering in the Torah is prescribed to be of choice flour with oil mixed in. Prepare three tenths of a measure for a bull, two tenths for a ram, and eat, for each of the seven lambs, prepare one tenth of a measure. Now, that's from Numbers 28, verses 20 through 21, Numbers 29, 3 through 4, and verses 14 through 15. Now, such differences indicate that diverse priestly conditions, sorry, traditions, diverse priestly traditions existed in ancient Israel, or they mark innovations for the future. Now, despite the clear symmetry between the rites of the first and seventh months, purgations on the first and seventh days, and a week of sacrifices beginning on the 15th day of the month, special mention is made of the Pesach offering required on the 14th day of the first month this distinction between the sacrifice on that day and the week-long offering sorry the week-long festival of unleavened bread agrees with ancient priestly regulations as recorded in Exodus 12 the additional Torah reading for Shabbat HaKodesh but Ezekiel does not give a precise time for the sacrifice whereas Exodus 12 6 Spec- specifies that the requisite lamb was slaughtered at Twilight on the 14th day. So uh, we are going to call it uh, an episode. We thank you for being here and just want to read from a inspirational verse from the Gospels, about the role. So I want to correct something I said earlier. I said Matthew, but the genealogy, one of Yeshua's parents' uh, genealogy appears in Matthew 1, and then the other one, I believe, appears in Mark or Luke. But we'll take a look here at Luke 1, and... Let me double check that, the genealogy. I really like to refer properly to scripture, but sometimes I get ideas and then have to check on the fly while I'm talking to you and sharing in the middle. But, oh well, thank God for the internet and high-speed access and a day and age, which is also called, uh, you know, we're in the age of Messiah, so high-tech access to Torah and spirituality is here. So... Uh, Let's see, genealogy is, I thought it was in here, in Luke, let's see, well, I apologize friends, but anyway, so the two genealogies, they are a little bit different, oh yeah, and here it is, it's in Luke chapter 3, and it starts in uh, verse 23. So, one is um, Miriam, and one is Joseph. And I always have to look and see um, which makes more sense. Now, they are reversed in order. One starts with uh, Yeshua, and it calls him, in Luke 3.23, the son of Joseph, as was supposed, right? And then the it goes through... The genealogy all the way back to Adam and then calls him the son of God. Now I believe this is Joseph's genealogy and I believe the one in Matthew is Miriam's because the Lord Hashem was his father and Miriam was born. She actually went through a um, priestly line because remember, she was related to Sheva and Sheva would have had to have been a priest in order to be married to a priest. Uh, typically, typically. And this genealogy goes, they go through different sons of David. So, Joseph's lineage was through Nathan, who was one of king david's sons and you see that in verse 31 now if you go over to the matthew genealogy that one goes through solomon i believe yeah it has to and this genealogy goes through Perez, which is prophesied that the messiah is going to come through the uh, son of judah named Perez, and uh, this is uh, the judaic um, line, and I believe the other, the other genealogy, like I said, goes through Levi. No, I misspoke. This one also is Judah through Perez, so they were both of the tribe of Judah. But there was some connection, some family connection, to Elisheva and Zachariah in uh, Luke chapter one. Because uh, Yeshua and John the Immerser are or were cousins. Uh, But the difference here, one of the big differences here in Matthew chapter 1 is that the genealogy goes through Solomon and not. uh, So each of them were from different sons of the Davidic line. Okay, so uh, going back to what I wanted to read you, friends, was from Luke. And this is, I believe, a very powerful passage. Luke 1.1. For as so much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to right, To you, in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. So we are to know the certainty of the things wherein we have been instructed. So, if you are in trouble in your faith, if you are wondering what you believe, why you believe, or if you know completely what you believe, ask Hashem to develop and strengthen what you believe, and give you greater things give you greater things to wrestle with to grow in and to reach further and to find yourself in the footsteps of the Messiah thank you for listening friends may you be blessed and encouraged God bless you and I always would like to invite you to make Yeshua the Messiah and Lord of your life and ultimately the God of Israel the Savior and Redeemer of people far and wide from all nations but first and foremost from Israel God bless you And shalom or Shabbat shalom, whatever day you may be listening to this.